You're listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. If you want to listen to us in real time, you can stream our show live weekdays at 9 a.m. Central. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Good morning. I'm Carrie Miller. This is NPR News. President Trump went to the southern border on Friday and then by many accounts fired his Secretary of Homeland Security, although she is saying that she resigned. Kirsten Nielsen has had a tumultuous tenure. We're going to talk about why. We'll also talk about the effect that Nielsen's decisions and the president's decisions are having on immigration numbers and policy overall. And you might have some questions or consideration on that. Do you believe that President Trump's management of immigration policy as a whole has been effective? Is he trying to use some measures that would work beyond the current urgent situation at the border? Or have his policies themselves created the problems that he's now struggling to deal with? So I'd like to know your view, no matter where you are on the political spectrum of the way President Trump is managing the immigration situation and whether he's trying to use some measures that would work, but they're being set back by what's happening at the border. Or are his policies themselves creating the very problems that that he's now struggling to deal with? Here's the phone number, 651-227-6000-800-242-2828. And I'm on Twitter, at Carrie NPR. Ken Rudin, the political junkie, is joining us. Hi, Ken. Good to have you back. Good morning, Carrie. And Michel Morisco is with us. He's the Fronteras Desk Senior Editor at KJZZ. Does a lot of reporting from the border, and he's with us today from Tucson. And Michel, welcome. Good to have you on the show. Hey, good morning. Thank you very much. Ken, I'm, I'm going to get to Kirsten Nielsen here in just a minute, but I want to talk about the president's trip to Calexico, California. He was there to see parts of the border barriers that have been replaced, and construction crews have put up new fencing this fall. Presidents send messages with their itineraries. President Trump especially does this. What does the visit to Calexico tell us, given what's happening on other parts of the border? What's your assessment of that? Well, it's I mean, we've seen this from the moment he went down the escalator at Trump Tower in 2015, that basically illegal immigration or even immigration or the situation at the border is a key issue in why he ran for president and probably why he was elected president. And so the fact I mean, your 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 introduction to the show is fascinating because it asked 9,000 questions that would probably take several hours of a show <laughs> to answer. But the fact is, those questions are legitimate. Are they, is it because of his policies? Is it because of his situation in, say, in those so-called three Mexican countries, as Fox News like to call it? <laughs> but I mean, the, 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 the uh, economic and political repression or, or dis, uh, discrimination uh, going on in El Salvador and Guatemala and Honduras, does, is that part of the problem? Of course it's part of the problem. Are his are the president's solutions or his his um, decisions uh, regarding those problems workable solutions or are, are they impossible to implement? So the fact that he's at the border, it's a reminder. I mean, we always like to talk about his base, but it's telling his base that I care about this. This is why you elected me. And this is why you should reelect me in 2020 because of this intolerable situation on the border. And Michelle, I'm going to grab a call for you uh, from uh, with that. Somebody ha- is asking about something that I wanted to bring up here. So let's go to Scott and Waconia. Hi, Scott. What's your what's your question and your thought on this? 
Uh, good morning. I think it's an incredibly complex situation just to start with, and unfortunately there aren't any simple answers, and I think we're trying to approach it from a simple, we'll just do this and solve it. But the, I think there's an incidence of gun sales that go up whenever there's a shooting event because everybody thinks they're going to take away the right to buy guns. And I kind of think that this is the same way, that the policy mm. or the threats to close the border or do uh, what we're going to do with the wall or whatever it is that's going on, detain people, is causing a rush of people because that news must get out. Yeah. And so folks are saying, oh, we better get there before they close it up and we can't ever go anymore. Mi- Michelle, is that an <laughs> accurate assessment? Yes. I mean, the, the, every single time going back uh, a several presidents. This is not novel to uh, President Trump. Uh, when when there's some sort of policy shift or new uh, narrative, new rhetoric on the border, uh, things tend to uh, adapt and change really quickly. Best example right now. Second best example, when President Trump first came into office. That, that year was almost uh, immigration was at some of its absolute lowest across the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, and then this year, uh, as, as, a, as the conversation shifted, uh, people continued uh, drifting north. Now, you know, once, once, it, once it became evident to people that, uh, that there was support, that there was, uh, that there was an opportunity, at least a chance, to be able to come into the U.S. through other mechanisms uh, rather than simply ports of entry, yeah, things change. Yeah, and Michelle, just a quick question here. Is it true, and you've been reporting at the border for a long time, is it true that the demography of who is coming to the border to seek asylum or yeah. people that are that are coming over the border undocumented uh, and trying to work in the United States, is that population different than they once were? Oh, yes. So uh, to break it down in a very, very rough uh, demographic split, uh, going back 10 years ago, we had predominantly undocumented Mexican nationals trying to avoid being captured. So uh, now we have Central American families and children, unaccompanied children and uh, folks without families who are literally walking up to Border Patrol agents and surrendering so when the border patrol talks about apprehending people well they they uh, they didn't have to chase them very far you know they, these are folks who, who who uh in some cases are simply walking around uh vehicle barriers uh at ports of entry and then literally as soon as they're setting foot literally setting foot on u.s soil uh being able to to surrender to cbp and, and which creates uh a far larger logistical uh, need for CBP because now they're trying to uh, maintain people in custody. They're trying to hold people uh, for longer periods of time. These aren't just uh, undocumented Mexican, uh, predominantly males back okay. in the day, so, so, uh, who would just return back to Mexico. Michelle, I think that's helpful for us to understand why the processes are, have to be different because the population is different. Why does this look different? Ken, did you want to add something to that? Well, I'm just thinking of the political aspect of it all. And I, first of all, I want to, uh, Scott's question was excellent because I thought the same thing when, when, when there's talk about memory, Hillary, Hillary Clinton was going to take away our guns the way Barack Obama was going to take away our guns. And suddenly everybody was buying guns. And I think that the fact is that, that because of these sometimes 
much tougher policies uh, uh, called for by the president. That's why more and more people are coming in. But as far as what can be solved, what can be accomplished, um, I mean, it just it seems to be coming more and more down to politics and, and sharing the blame rather than coming up with any solutions. As Michelle said, um, this is a very complicated issue, situation that is not going to result in easy uh, solutions. Ken, I, I want to play something that the president said uh, in a press conference after he went to Calexico. You mentioned his base. Let's talk about how this sounds to his base. Let's listen. So, as I say, and this is our new statement the system is full can't take you anymore whether it's asylum whether it's uh, anything you want it's illegal immigration can't take you anymore we can't take you our country is full our area is full the sector is full can't take you anymore i'm sorry can't happen so turn around that's the way it is You know, I don't know if that's a factual statement but it sounds like a political statement ken how do you hear it well well, it's clearly political, but it was so the the fact that he said it so casually, like like my 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 policy is I just turn around, forget about forget about it. You know, as they say in Brooklyn, <laughs> yeah. it just sounded it sounded so strange and so offhand and and haphazard. Just just matter of factly said. Whereas all the if you think of all the things, and that, I go back to the beginning of your introduction because in addition to all the things that are going wrong. The United States and the Trump policy did not help his own cause by separating families or trying to change the, the laws or or shutting down the border and and all those things. When you think of Kristen Nielsen and Kristen Nielsen, and we'll get to her in a second, as you say, but she opposed Trump and all those things. She thought the separation of families right. was wrong. She thought that um, that when, when when they talked about he talked about closing the border, she said this. Her Department of Homeland Security said this would be a result in a serious economic impact. And when you stand up to the president, especially on such a big issue, an important issue like immigration, that's too much for the president. And, you know, I don't think there's any question whether she was fired or 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 resigned on her own. I think uh, I think the former rather than the latter. Here's the graph from The New York Times story that really speaks to what Ken is saying about how the secretary was basically between a rock and a hard place. So here's how it reads. The president called Ms. Nielsen at home early in the mornings to demand that she take action to stop migrants from entering the country, including doing things that were clearly illegal, such as blocking all migrants from seeking asylum. She repeatedly noted the limitations imposed on her department by federal laws, court settlements and international obligations. Those responses only infuriated Mr. Trump further. Michelle, just a quick question here. Uh, she she is right. She must abide by the law, which means that if you come and you ask for asylum, as many of these people are doing, you have to be processed. Is that correct? You have to be processed. Uh, you initially sit down for what's called a credible fear interview with a, a citizenship and immigration services uh, official uh, who will gauge, you know, the, the veracity, validity of, of your uh, of your your argument basically um one thing with with secretary nielsen you know just less than 24 hours ago uh she had just uh, sent out a statement saying that she was going to be expanding a a remain in mexico policy where to other parts of the of the mexican border wherein people seeking asylum would be required to wait in mexico uh for for their asylum hearing rather than 
uh, be given a um, uh, a bus ticket here in the U.S. Right. and and then heading into uh, immigration courts throughout this country. Um, so yeah, everything was completely unexpected. All signs point to that. And uh, she was actually continuing some of these very hardened policies that she was trying to implement for President Trump. Yeah, CNN is reporting right now that President Trump has been pushing to reinstate these family separation policies. Uh, Let's play what Secretary Nielsen said about the family separation policy when she was asked about it by a reporter. Here she is. It's not. Again, we do it every day in every part of the country. If you have a family and you commit a crime, the police do not not put you in jail because you have a family. They prosecute you and they incarcerate you. Illegal aliens should not get just different rights because they happen to be illegal aliens. I mean, Ken, to be fair, this was a very I mean, she defended it and she defended it wholeheartedly, but it was a very difficult place to be, given what the president wanted. See, what I just heard in Secretary Nielsen's uh, comments, it sounded like a woman or person who was trying to fight for her job, because my understanding is that until she came around to the Trump point of view on separation, things like that, she was against it. She said it was illegal and and she said it was wrongheaded, but... I guess maybe perhaps in in an effort to keep her job, she had to toe the Trump line. Just like, look, I was just listening to all these things. And one of the reasons uh, President Trump withdrew the name of his his nominee to head up ICE because he's now going in a tougher direction, a tougher direction. (laughs) I mean, what is more tougher than what we've been seeing for the past two years? Ken Rudin with us, the political junkie, and Michelle Marisco with us. He's the Fronteras Desk Senior Editor and with us today from Tucson, Arizona, asking you as we discuss these latest turns in immigration policy to also take a larger view. Do you think President Trump's management of immigration policy as a whole has been effective? Is he trying to use some measures that would work beyond what's going on with this urgent situation at the border or have his policies themselves created the problems that he's now struggling to deal with. As Ken noted at the beginning of the show, we could spend hours talking about this. We have an hour and I'd really love your assessment of this. 651-227-6000-800-242-2828 on Twitter at Carrie NPR, where Paul says, define the problems and the situation. Immigration rates are dropping. There's a humanitarian crisis in Central America, yes. There's a desire to find relief in the American labor market, a market desperate for new laborers. The only problem, Paul says, is American self-defeating racism to the phones to Ben in Minneapolis. Hi, Ben. What's your question or your view on this? I think it's a mistake to try to analyze President Trump's interest in immigration as a policy or even to think of it as policy. What he wants from immigrants is two things. He wants them to serve as bogeymen. He repeatedly describes them as come swarming over the border to rape and murder and infest infect our kids with drugs. And to the extent that he succeeds in revving up his base to believe that, he appears as a strong man hero, vanquishing the problem. And the second thing he wants from them is to serve as scapegoats. They're uh, depressing wages here and taking our jobs away. And to the extent that he succeeds in persuading his base of that, then he appears to be solving the economic problems, which you know are really due 
to uh, globalization of the economy and immense shifts in the energy economy and other things, which he's doing nothing to solve. Ken, um, that's a pretty intricate political assessment. What do you make of it? It's 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 harsh, but I think this somewhat somewhat a lot what Ben says is accurate. I think that look, we have used scapegoats. We, the United States and its politicians, have used scapegoats for the longest time. We always remember the the welfare mom who will buy a Cadillac. You know that was part of that stereotype in the sixties and seventies and eighties about people who would abuse the system. But there's a more of a, a racial connotation, uh, and when you go after people of color, and we've seen and people of of like you know Latinos that that famous Hispanic uh, judge from Indiana uh, who was ruling on the Trump University thing it always seems to cloud his 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 just views on policy and so interesting that that when we're talking about countries where you're not supposed to come in from not only the 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 the, the Muslim countries uh, that was part of the travel ban but of course uh, the Hispanics from Central and Latin America and then you talk about the, the countries that people like, like, well, why can't they all come from Sweden? Why can't they all come from, <laughs> you know, places like that? We've heard them say that. And so it, it, it does get ugly. It, it, it is about politics. Um, God bless them if it works. But, but if this was truly an emergency, I mean, we're talking about this is a national emergency. There's not even a deputy Homeland Security secretary. I mean, Nielsen, with Nielsen's departure, there's no deputy to take her place because, they never, because it wasn't important enough to nominate one. And yet this is supposed to be the national emergency that is affecting U.S. policy. Hey, Ken, thank you much as always, and we'll talk to you next Monday, and we'll probably still be talking about immigration somehow, right? Appreciate it. It's a great show. Thanks, Gary. Uh, And since many of you have listened to the political junkie uh, conversations that I've been having with Ken over the years for many years, I want to let you know about a change that we're making. You've heard me talk about making sure that we hear a diversity of voices on the show, people who come from different backgrounds and families and cities and towns in the United States, people with different experiences. So we are going to, at the end of April, say goodbye to Ken and the Political Junkies segment, and we're going to recommit to looking for some fresh voices, new voices that you haven't heard before on the show to talk about politics. We are really grateful, Ken knows this, to have had Ken's insights for many election cycles and You can still find him on his Political Junkie podcast. Again, that happens at the end of April. All right, back to our conversation this hour, and we're bringing a new guest in. Kevin Johnson is with us. He's dean of the UC Davis School of Law. He's an expert on immigration, and he's the author of Immigration Law and the U.S.-Mexican Border, and joining us from Davis, California. Kevin, welcome. It's really good to have you back on the show. Uh, thanks for having me. And Kev and uh, Michelle Marisco continues with us. He's the Fronteras Desk Senior Editor in Tucson, Arizona. Kevin, uh, we've talked a bit about Kirsten Nielsen's uh, resignation or firing. I, I guess I want to ask you about whether you you see any kind of a clear strategy in the Trump administration to dealing with what is happening at the moment on the border. And I'm not here to say it's an emergency, it's unsolvable. But I guess I'm asking, do you see a strategy to manage what's happening right now there? No, I don't see a clear strategy embraced by the Trump administration. I see a number of efforts uh, you know, at various angles trying to reduce the number of, of migrants from Central America coming here. Uh, and I think that uh, some of the, the, you know, the responses are quite novel, like the, the um, return to Mexico policy uh, and uh, detention and family separation. Um, but we've seen 
uh, a great deal of concern with a number of policies, a, a great deal of worry that they don't comply with the law. And at this point, I don't think we have a, a sort of a clear policy route to get us out of what some view is a, a, a predicament or simply a way of managing the, the migration of people coming from Central America. And there are significant numbers, perhaps not an invasion as some claim, but there, there are numbers and we have to figure out how to deal with it in the best possible way. And Kevin, Michel uh, talked to us a few minutes ago about how the demography is of who is coming to the border for asylum and over the border without documentation has changed. I, I want to ask you about the fact that the president has cut off foreign aid to Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. I I do want to say it it wasn't billions and billions of dollars, but it is money that those countries presumably needed. There was an interesting op-ed in the time, in the New York Times, from two people who study this at Haverford College, and they said cutting off foreign assistance is unlikely to persuade Central American governments to take actions that reduce the migratory flow. And then it goes on, and I'll add a bit in just a minute, but I guess, are these countries doing what it, what they can, doing the utmost to stop people from leaving, or are they, or are they kind of taking a more passive view, which is what the president suggests? I, I think the governments of you know the, the Northern Triangle are in a, in a serious predicament. They have crime problems that that are difficult to deal with. Uh, the problems made worse by the the U.S. Uh, de- deportation policies fo- focusing on, on on criminal removals, uh, and so th- they're they're getting people returned to the country that aren't fully integrated, who who have criminal backgrounds. Uh, I think that um, you know most economists would tell you that if you're really interested in decreasing migration pressures, which we should be doing, is investing in those countries to build their economies and to build infrastructures and institutions that allow the rule of law to operate freely and efficiently. Uh, it would You would think that a, a government and a set of governments that are having economic problems, that have problems with institution building, have problems with policing, uh, would do worse, not better, with any decrease in foreign aid. So it's unclear to me how a decrease in foreign aid is going to help stop or stem the flow of migrants from Central America to the United States. In all likelihood, is those governments continue to to uh, flail about in, in ways. We may see an increase in migration because of the decrease in foreign aid. Call here from Sarah in Rochester, Minnesota. Hi, Sarah. Thanks so much for waiting. Hi, thank you for taking my call. What are you thinking about? Well, I'm a server down here, and I work right by the Mayo Clinic, and I would say that the majority of my clientele are Caucasian, and the irony is thick. Um, I had a table last night, a gentleman telling me about how his ancestors or his grandparents came here from Norway, mm-hmm. and that they had not a lick of English, and um, that a nice man on a farm took them in, gave them a place to live, and I thought to myself, you know, with all of the immigration talk, where did we all come from? We all came from a different country, and we came here to better ourselves. And my entire kitchen staff is from Central America. Mm-hmm. So you just think to yourself, when we have people talking about we don't want these people here, but these people are the people who are doing the behind-the-scenes work, and they are some of the hardest-working people I've ever seen. Um, number one, I have, like, a number that one of my guys I work with is – he is phenomenal. And I have people say, customers saying he is the hardest worker I've seen. I, I just really think that people need to think about who they are and where their families came from. 
and to, to really think about why these people are leaving their countries to come here to start a better life. I think that's what we all look for. Sarah, and our ancestors have looked for. I, I, you bring up a really good point that I wanted to get to with Michelle and Kevin, uh, which is, Michelle, you know that there has been an ongoing debate, uh, and, and I don't know that the two sides are ever really going to see one another's point on this, but that most of these people coming here are here to find work that Americans' labor force needs. I mean, I think we can put some economic numbers up against this, but I know you have more interaction with people at the border. What is the purpose for leaving Central America and coming into the United States, as as stated by the people you talk to? Right. Well, you know, the, the, it's the same story uh, almost over and over and over. It, it's almost fascinating because it's it's so common. Uh there's 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 either no work or as in the case now with the northern triangle uh the the opportunities for for work for prosperity in their home countries don't exist because of the public security crises uh cam was talking earlier about the uh some of the investment in in uh in the northern triangle countries look at el salvador uh, this is a good model uh, in fact kevin McAleen, uh the the incoming uh DHS secretary just a year ago was saying that El Salvador was a good model of of what works when it comes to U.S. aid and investment. Uh, he 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 was quoted as saying, "We want to achieve those same types of successes in Honduras and Guatemala." And that was you know a year before some of that foreign aid was cut last week. So yeah, there's there's uh, two problems in the Northern Triangle. There's either lack of work or there's lack of, of uh, public security so that people can actually do the work that, that they're good at, that they want to do. Right. And, and, and Kevin, yeah, Kevin, go ahead. On the issue the of the labor market. Shortage. Yeah, go ahead. Well, you couple that here with, with a labor shortage in America. Uh-oh. Kevin, I think we're having some phone problems here with you. We'll, we'll try to get that ironed out as I take a new call here to David in St. Paul. I'm here. Oh, oh, there you are, Kevin. Good. Go right ahead. You were saying. No, I, I, I wasn't responding. Oh, I'm sorry. That was, that was Michelle. We were losing the connection. Okay. I was asking you, Kevin, about the labor shortages and where the people that are seeking asylum or coming in without documentation or coming in legally – from this Northern Triangle area fit in to the needs of the labor market? Can you talk well, about that? A, there, there is a need in the agricultural sector, the service sector, I'm here. in the construction sector, um, where uh, undocumented immigrants and, and um, low-wage low workers are much in demand. And currently, with the Trump administration focused on immigration enforcement, there's claims of shortages in, in the agriculture industry, particularly the dairy industry, uh, and there's a great deal of concern that, uh, you know, there, there'll be crops in the fields that aren't going to be picked because of the labor shortage. One of the problems with our current immigration laws is we don't have a particularly good way of allowing low and medium skilled workers to have access to the United States. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we have such a large undocumented population, around 11 million people, because employers value that labor. labor and if, uh, if workers get here, they know they can get work. Kevin, uh, one of the things that that uh, Secretary Nielsen apparently did before she submitted the resignation or got fired was enlarge, sign a, a proclamation or a resolution or something that 
increases the guest worker program. You've just said that that program is too small. If people that own farms and companies are telling the government that they need more labor and that they can't find it in this market, is that is that like a direct solution? Enlarge the guest worker program and we'll solve that part of the immigration issue. I think that's one of the, one of the possibilities in um, comprehensive immigration reform considered by Congress in 2013. Uh, there, there would have been an expansion in, in, in the guest worker programs, and some have said that that's kind, that's what we need today, um, making it possible for legal workers to come work in this country, uh, and and to to address the, the, the labor needs uh, of employers in this country. One of the issues, and it's always an issue. Uh, is well, if these guest workers come, is it how how easy is it going to be uh, to um, have them return when their their guest worker time is up? Uh-huh. And that's been that's been a problem with previous guest worker programs like the Bracero program that was in place from World War II until the early 1960s, because workers come and they do things that you people do. They they form community ties. They have families. They have citizen children. They go to our churches, go to our schools. And so, so it's uh, guest worker programs are a possibility, but they're, they're not always the easiest to enforce. And some think that, well, if we allow guest workers to come, is it really fair to just exploit their labor, allow them to work, and then get rid of them when they're no longer needed? So there, there are a lot of issues to discuss, but that's certainly one policy alternative that, that has been part of comprehensive immigration reform debates. And, and I think as we discuss that, though, Kevin, don't we have to acknowledge that many people, you know, overstay visas, get jobs, form these communities? I, I don't want listeners to think, well, what happens is people just kind of vanish into the fabric of American life, you know, and, that, and that's the only way they do it, by coming in over the southern border. No, a no, lot of people actually, overstay the visas. Yeah, go ahead. That's a, that's an incredibly important point. You know, the, the 11 million undocumented people here, more than half came here on, you know, visas, maybe tourist visas, business visas, uh, or, or, or related visas, overstayed the terms of those visas and, and became, an, you know, unauthorized to stay in this country. Uh, what does that mean? Well, it means that you know, efforts to build a wall, to increase border enforcement, really will only address one part of the overall undocumented population. It doesn't deal with what are called visa overstays, the people who overstay their visas. So even if President Trump got his wall, uh, even if the National Guard's on the border, even if you know Central Americans are detained in mass, uh, that's only going to deal with sort of part of the undocumented immigration problem. And, and that's something that uh, the president has to think about and also Congress has to think about. If they're really interested in addressing undocumented migration, you have to deal with visa overstays. Kevin Johnson is with us. He's the dean at UC Davis School of Law in Davis, California. And we're talking about the latest visit that the president made to the border at Calexico, California, the fact that he has now fired or she resigned his secretary of Homeland Security and where we are on immigration policy overall. And that's where my question to you fits in. I want to know whether you think the the president's management of immigration policy as a whole has been effective. Is he trying to use some measures that would be valuable beyond the current situation at the border? Or are his policies themselves creating the problems that he's now struggling to deal with 
Think about that. As a listener, as a voter, 651-227-6800-242-2828. And on Twitter, at Carrie NPR, to James in St. Paul. Hi, James. Hi. Uh, I was going to observe that we often talk about immigration as if it was all good or all bad. And we rarely have the conversation, which I think we ought to, which is, you know, how many people should we have coming? How many people do we need? We know we need some to make our economy go. It's also fairly clear we can have too many and create all kinds of problems. Mm -hmm. But we never talk about what's the right number, what's the right kind of people, professionals or labor or something else. And I think it's way past time we started talking about it intelligently um, rather than simply tossing it out as all good or all bad. This is a great point, James. And Kevin, that's what happens when you've got congressional debate and legislation, which we've gotten close to a few times, right? Those very issues that that James just brought up get baked in to the debate about legislation, don't they? they? They do. And I think they're an important national discussion to have. One of the unfortunate aspects of uh, President Trump's immigration enforcement policies and his various statements about immigration um, is that I don't think they're con- contributing to an environment where we can have sort of rational and reasonable discussion of some very legitimate issues that we have before us, considering how many and what kind of immigrants to admit to this country are, are very important issues, considering the best way of enforcing our immigration laws, uh, that's a very legitimate issue, considering whether we need to, to tinker with our legal immigration system is also a legitimate issue. But we're in an environment now where uh, there are accusations and, and uh, uh, responses to those accusations that make it very difficult to have a reasoned and logical discussion about some, some really difficult issues. And one of the things I, I would emphasize is that and if anybody tells you these issues are easy ones that we can solve them immediately, I don't think they're telling the full truth. I think these are incredibly complicated issues that go to the core of American national identity uh, and, and what, really what we are as a nation. And, and they deserve our careful attention and reasoned, reasoned debate that's going, only going to um, lead us to possible positive change. Yeah, Kevin, I think it's interesting to listen to the people at the border who are, you know, who have been there for a long time, have a lot of experience with this. We we pulled out a, a soundbite here from D. Margo. He's the mayor of El Paso, and he's actually saying, Congress, do something. Let's listen. Well, they've got to revamp this law and, and the whole immigration process. They've not done anything for 30 years. There's been no intestinal fortitude exhibited on either side of the aisle, and our president needs to take the lead there. That's the humanitarian crisis is is changing the law. That's the problem. Intestinal fortitude is a good way to put it, Kevin. It's a highly, as as we know, as has been noted by our callers, too, it's a highly politicized emotional issue here. And is it, do you think it's right that nothing or true that this is probably not going to happen now until after the 2020 presidential election, which is still 18 months away. Yeah, I think it's highly unlikely that we're going to get any kind of serious comprehensive immigration reform uh, before uh, um, the 2020 elections. We're we're at a place now that um, we we haven't been in many years. I mean, during the Bush administration, during the Obama administration, there, there are fairly serious discussions between the president and Congress about possible reforms. They didn't come to pass, but there was discussion 
and and now you know that the environment is so um, so so poisoned in some ways uh, that I don't think those discussions are taking place, uh, and Pre- President Trump continues to sort of engage in in policies that that provoke a great deal of objections, often don't comply with the law, end up in the courts. Uh, and it's uh, not an environment where you're likely to see, um, see 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 much reason debate, which is necessary really to some kind of reform proposal. Call here from David in St. Paul. Hi, David. Thanks so much for waiting. I know it's been a while. Sure. I have a question for your legal expert. Sure. <clears throat> Since the president has declared that there's an invasion crisis, could he invoke martial law for the border area, suspending asylum law, and then legally refusing to accept immigrants? I think that raises a, a series of complex legal issues. My short answer is no. Uh, I do think that uh, declaration of martial law and, and, and um, sort of suspending all, all, all immigration laws would be an extraordinary step uh, that I you know, uh, could imagine happening, but I couldn't imagine the courts upholding it. Kevin, I I also want to note, because we've been talking about what might end up in some kind of comprehensive immigration reform, I want to note that President Trump believes that limits of legal immigration should decline as well. So he is not only concerned about the people that are coming in without documentation, he doesn't believe we should be letting in as many people legally as we do. Do you understand the argument? I mean, do you understand... I've never heard him really articulate what, why. What's your understanding of that? Well, President Trump has endorsed a proposal in Congress known as the RAISE Act. And the RAISE Act would reduce immigration basically from, from $1 million a year to, to 500000 a year. Uh, and and the, it would also redirect migration from uh, countries where we, we now receive many my immigrants, including Mexico, China, India, and the Philippines, and redirecting them to the country, English-speaking countries, and countries where the population is is highly skilled. So, so one of the the things the Raise Act does is it it tries to tighten and and really reduce what the president has is denigrated as is um, uh, chain migration, uh, and that is that is uh, the migration of uh, family members that's uh, embedded in our current immigration laws. So, I, I think you're exactly right. Uh, the, the president is focused on re- reducing numbers in, the, in current legal immigration. You can also see that in his re- reduction of numbers uh, uh, of refugee admissions. We right. currently have the, the lowest refugee admission numbers of, uh, we've had in the last 50 years or so. Uh, and, and I think you know the travel ban dealt with legal immigrants as well, trying to, to limit immigration from or, or from those con- you know the countries. In the, in the Middle East, so so I, I I do think that there is an effort to limit um, illegal immigration, and, and you see, well, I mean you also see it in sort of the, the the tighter visa reviews that the Trump administration is engaging in with higher visa denial rates. Um, now, if uh, something like the Raise Act were to be passed by Congress, then the issue might be with a reduction in immigration, we might see um, um, more immigrants. Coming in violation of the law, oh. um, coming for jobs, coming for opportunity in the United States. So it's not clear to me uh, that the Raise Act or, or anything reducing the numbers would would be effective in the end. Uh, but it's it's certainly one approach to immigration. It's an approach that President Trump is 
endorsed. Yeah, like, like an unintended consequence um, exactly. of supporting that. We got a call from Diane and Edina who said, I'm looking at the contrast between Trump saying we're full, but she says they just doubled the H-2 worker visa program. And then she adds, it seems like they want the cheap labor on their terms. Is that true that the H-2 worker visa program has increased? Yeah, that's that, that was just recently expanded. And in, in, in large part, that was a response to employers who wanted uh, more, more guest workers in that, in that visa category. And one of the things that, that's challenging in the Republican Party, I think, is that there's some um, some parts of the party that, that want easier access to immigrant labor. There's some parts of the party that very much want tighter restrictions and border controls uh, and the reduction of, of, of immigration. Uh, from, from particularly from from Central America, but uh, but other other developing nations populated by people of color, so so I I do think that there's this internal debate among the Republican Party, and probably uh, that that kind of debate led to President Trump deciding not to follow through on his threat to close the border oh, with Mexico, right? Um, because there's a great deal of concern with the economic impacts of a border closure policy. Uh, and now we have a much more sort of uh, toned down threat to add tariffs if things don't improve in a year. In a year. But, but I do yeah. think, yeah, I do think there's a, a debate in the Republican Party about the best approach to immigration. Call here from Jesus in St. Paul. Hi, good morning. Good morning. I, I wanted to give Cher a perspective in which I don't feel corporations or companies are being held accountable. We talk about the migration coming from one perspective, meaning immigrants that are coming to teaching work. How about the companies that historically have done outreach for labor into Mexico and so forth, pulling in even here in Minnesota to the sugar beet industry, which made multi-millions of dollars off their labor, and then turned around and created the Wetback program, which sent a lot of them back. The, the, what hurts me as somebody who comes from a parent who is an immigrant, who came here undocumented, is that – it's always a narrative about how much we're just cheap labor and how much we're just wanting to invade, when in truth is this capitalist system wouldn't exist without having that labor. And what company has been held responsible for this? None. I never hear about CEOs being sent to jail or being fined for, for the amount of immigration that's happening at the turkey farms here or yeah. – so on. So, yeah, this is so much. Jesus, I'm really glad you were listening because this is a part of the discussion that we haven't had yet, which is, Kevin, I know there have been raids on some companies, but Jesus is exactly right. Where's the accountability at the top of these corporations that know that they need this labor and utilize it? Well, I think that uh, the, the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986 created a new uh, program where it's called employer sanctions for employers of undocumented immigrants. Uh, and most would say that that employer sanction pro- sanctions program really hasn't been effective enforcement and that employers still do employ undocumented immigrants. And there, there is a concern with exploitation uh, of immigrant workers, including undocumented immigrant workers. One way of responding to that that we haven't done is to in- increase the em- enforcement of employer sanctions is one possibility. Another possibility is increasing enforcement of, of wage and labor protections for all workers to ensure that um, immigrant workers aren't um, paid in violation of law, working in conditions in violation of law. Uh, and in many states, the, the enforcement uh, resources just aren't there to protect immigrant, particularly undocumented immigrant workers, and that the, the, the law, legal protections really aren't enforced. And that's a, that's a serious problem. 
Um, and, and I, I do agree that you know employers uh, do want access to immigrant labor. Uh, that doesn't necessarily translate into wanting to, to pay that labor mm. uh, what some people think it should be paid, right. uh, including you know, in compliance with minimum wage laws. Yeah. So I, so I, I think that we have a problem there, and we, we haven't addressed it yet. And, and I really hear what Jesus was saying about his mother, who came in without documentation, answered an ad saying, right, come work on the sugar beet. I mean, there's a you know, hear no evil, see no evil thing here with with mm-hmm. c- uh, companies in big agriculture. And we see this in our area, needing this kind of labor and looking for it in places where they know they're going to activate people that don't have documentation. I don't hear the president talking about that very often. Nope, we don't. Uh, call here from Alex in St. Cloud. Hi, Alex. Thanks so much for waiting. Sure. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I've got two questions for you. At the beginning of your show, you asked, um, have President Trump's policies been successful, I guess, or effective? And my question for you and your guest experts, um, what would you or they define as effective? And when we're framing that question of our term effective, effective for who? Effective for our immigrants? Effective for our corporations? Effective for our political system. Um, just curious what yes. your, your definitions for those would be. Good, good questions. And and as I asked that, I was reminded immediately by our guests of how complicated this is. I guess, Kevin, weigh in on this, but I was thinking of the word effective as we are seeing a lot of people coming north from Central America because of conditions uh, that are not of, in the immediate term, not of the U.S.'s making. How are we handling that situation? And I I think all evidence is, at the moment, not very well. So is it working for the goals that the United States government has for people that are trying to come into the United States? Maybe you have a different definition. No, I think effective, you would think, would be important for the people of the United States, important for all the groups that are affected by immigration. I do think that one part of the calculus that's important to keep in mind is that um, we also have a system of laws um, that uh, govern uh, and that people who are facing removal from the United States have a right to due process and a hearing. Under laws passed by Congress, people who are fleeing persecution have a right to apply for asylum and have those claims um, at least subject to uh, expedited removal and then possible full-blown removal proceeding. Uh, and some of the concerns that people have uh, is that uh, we're not being faithful to our commitment to the rule of law and due process of law. Uh, that's, a, that's a damage to all of us, an injury to all of us and our values, uh, as well as is mistreating people from another country. So I, I think that effectiveness uh, isn't just in terms of uh, material benefits to Americans, but also something that's consistent with our values and our constitution and our laws. Um, and, and, and that's a, that's a very serious concern in an instance where we, we have a president who at various times, uh, and we see that with respect to secretary Nielsen's firing, who seems more interested in political statements than complying with the rule of law. You know, I, I wonder we have about a minute left. The border control has been asking for more resources. I know there's a need for more judges to help with this. In the shortest of short term, could adding more resources at the border resolve some of the immediate problems there? 
would that work or would, is that just really a, a very small, you know, drop in the bucket here? No, I think the resources and more judges, I mean, the immigration judges for years have said that they're under-resourced uh, and you don't have many judges uh, or at least enough judges. And if we're committed to, um, you know, processing uh, these claims in a thoughtful way as opposed to just returning people without deciding their claims, uh, we need immigration courts that can do that. Uh, we need to have resourced immigration courts with clerks in, in, in the ability. Uh, we may need more detention facilities if we decide on that, and that's controversial in and of itself. Kevin, um, I'm, but, I'm afraid I have to wrap it there. It is always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so for much. Me. Thanks for all the insight. just heard a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. To add your voice to discussion, you can call in at 800-242-2828 or tweet us at NPR. And if you miss us live, you'll find all our shows by subscribing to this podcast. You can send us your questions or comments by emailing talk at npr.org.